Hey everyone, I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And again, welcome everyone. Feel free to put your information in the chat um, if you're available to sponsor, if you're struggling and need help. We believe here in a God who is still alive and well and working miracles and launches search and rescue missions for struggling addicts like us. So um, we are tonight on Bill's story page one. And I say this could actually be retitled God's story. Um, whenever there's someone who's about to speak for the first time, you know, inevitably they're nervous, right? And so the advice I generally give is just make God the hero of your story. Then you have nothing to be nervous about because it's not about you. It's not about me. It's about him. So this really, I was reading through this today again, and I'm like, this is God's story. God is the hero. So not sure we'll get through the whole story. If we don't, we'll just pick it up on Monday. That's a good thing about an informal workshop. We can just kind of roll the way we roll. And um, so anyway, Bill's story, page one. One thing I find really interesting about this is Bill said, I was part of life at last. And in the midst of the excitement, I discovered liquor. So th things were really good when he started drinking. And he said then he went off to war and he was lonely and again turned to alcohol. So now things are really bad. So it didn't matter what the circumstances are, whether they were good or whether they were bad. When we're, if we're eating compulsively, it never has to do with our circumstances. It always, 100% of the time, has to do with our relationship with God, with our, the status of our recovery. And so then it spends a couple pages just talking about Bill. We see on page two, he says, the drive for success was on. I'd proved to the world I was important. And there we see a trait that a lot of us have, right? Um, it's been said that addicts are egomaniacs with inferiority complexes. And I know that was me, right? Always thinking I was either the best or I was the worst. Never that I was just one of many, just one grain of sand on the beach. Um, and he said that he went to law school and he was so drunk, he couldn't even turn in an exam at one of his finals. I mean, think about that, going through a whole semester of law school, which is really, really hard and then not being able to complete his final. So he drank even though he had to be sober. And in the doctor's opinion, it talks about this. It says that sometimes, this is on Roman numeral 29, that sometimes um, people had to be sober. Something good was going to happen to them, but they ended up taking a drink anyway. So just because something good is um, about to happen or something bad will happen if we eat compulsively or drink, it doesn't stop us. Because again, our problem isn't lack of motivation as we'll talk about it's lack of power. Um, so here's Bill, he gets rich, things are going well, the stock market crashes um, and he's you know still kind of okay until page five where he says, liquor ceased to be a luxury. It became a necessity. 
And I think for all of us, there's this like invisible line where until then, if we really want to control it, we can. Or if someone says like, um, I see if I have one cookie, I end up eating the whole box. So I'm never again going to have a cookie. The problem is none of us know where that invisible line is. And it's pretty much inevitable that that line is in our rear view mirror, is in our past, and we've already crossed that line. And so um, it becomes a necessity. Well, what does that really mean? I think on page 24 of the book, it tells us that at a certain point in the drinking of every alcoholic or eating of every compulsive eater, he passes into a state, he crosses a line where the most powerful desire to stop drinking or stop overeating is of absolutely no avail. And I think this is really important to understand that it's not, it becomes a necessity. We can't stop on our own. Um, for myself, I spent six and a half years in Overeaters Anonymous binging and actually getting progressively worse and worse. I wanted to stop. I needed to stop. I couldn't stop because I crossed that invisible line. I actually think I'd crossed it by the time I was four years old. Um, I'd crossed that line. And what happens then when we can't stop ourselves? Well, then we're like people caught in an undertow, we need to be rescued. Um, and thank God, right? God didn't just create the world in six days, take a day off and decide to watch Netflix for the rest of eternity. I think um, he's, one of the things on his agenda is I think I'll, now that I've created the world and it is good, I will launch search and rescue programs for addicts. And that's what he did. And that's what Bill's story is about. So here's Bill. He's getting worse. Page five, he says, this had to be stopped. I had written lots of sweet promises, but my wife happily observed that this time I meant business. And so I did. He was sincere when he promised he wouldn't do it again. Now, there are certain things that a person can promise not to do again. It's like I can Oh, promise my husband I won't get up in the middle of the night and make the air conditioner colder. And I have the ability to keep that promise. But again, if we've crossed that line and we've lost the power, we can't keep the promise, even if we're sincere. It's almost like someone who has cancer and they promise someone that they will make their cancer cells stop multiplying. They have a disease, they can't. And so what happened to Bill right after he made that promise? Bottom of page five. Shortly afterward, I came home drunk. He said, where had been my high resolve? I didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. So it's like if I go to the beach and I get a really bad sunburn, next time I go to the beach, I'm going to remember to put on sunscreen. But what Bill's talking about is akin to someone who gets a really bad sunburn and then the next day goes to the beach and doesn't put sunscreen on and gets an even worse sunburn. And then two days later, goes to the beach without sunscreen and gets an even far worse sunburn until the point where he has to go to the hospital because he's got third degree burns and he gets treated for it and comes out and guess what? Goes to the beach 
without sunscreen. You would say that is insane. But don't we have that kind of insanity? I mean, step two says we came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, which means we have to be insane to come around. But it's okay. You know, we're all insane, getting sane or, you know, together. So it's fine. But that's what he says an appalling lack of perspective. What is that? This time I can have one drink, one cookie, one spoonful and get away with it. Lack of perspective, unable to do it. Um, so, I mean, I have lack of perspective in some things, right? Me thinking that I can run the same way I could run when I was 21 years old and end up hurting my knees. But after I do that a couple of times, I say, you know what? I can't run the way a 21 year old would run. I have to run the way a 61 year old would run. And I don't like it, but that's reality. But when it came to food, there was no perspective. So here's Bill renewing his resolve. He tries again. I mean, doesn't your heart ache for Bill? He's trying. He's so sincere. He promises his wife. Um, and then one day, page six, he walks into a cafe to use the telephone. I mean, again, that would be like, I'm out shopping one day, you know, newly abstinent and need to use the restroom. And out of all the stores in the mall, I pick Haagen-Dazs. Not real bright. And, um, but what happens? Starts saying, I think as, as long as I'm here, I may as well have one drink. And before you know it, good and drunk. And what does he say? I told myself I would manage better next time. Didn't we all do that? I know I did. Um, I may as well binge today. I'll start over tomorrow. And I call that the magic pillow cure, thinking that I have this magic pillow and if I put my head on it for seven or eight hours, I'm going to wake up magically cured. Well, so far as I know, there's no magic pillow that's been invented yet. So this I'll start tomorrow, it never works. And what happens to Bill? What does he feel? Remorse, horror, and hopelessness. It's so sad. Remorse. He's like hating himself horror. He's terrified of his future and he feels hopeless. These are all illness symptoms. He says, my brain raced uncontrollably. There was a terrible sense of calamity. And what happens? Nothing. Two more years. And then page seven, he goes to a hospital. And what happens there? Nothing. He's, and, but he thinks he gets something out of it. He comes out of the hospital and he says, surely this was the answer, self-knowledge. He understood about the illness. Well, let's say someone has cancer and they walk into their oncologist's office and the oncologist spends two hours explaining the nature of cancer cells and how they multiply and why this person has cancer. And they really have knowledge. They have self-knowledge about the cancer how they got it, what the cancer's doing. Imagine if someone then said, okay, great, now you understand it. Now make your cancer cells stop multiplying. That would be mean. 
And so let's be careful we don't do that to other people to say, you understand what this illness is, okay, now go stick to a food plan. That's what was told to me. Great, you understand what the problem is, now stick to a food plan. But that's just like an oncologist telling his patient, you understand about cancer now and your cancer, great, make your cancer cells stop multiplying. Doesn't work for a cancer patient, didn't work for me. So page eight, let's see some more things that um, Bill tried. Fear, he says he stepped from the hospital, a broken man. Isn't that interesting? So Bill probably took a first step. If you asked him, Bill, do you believe you're powerless over alcohol and your life is unmanageable? Bill would undoubtedly have said yes, but it didn't help. Again, so we don't wanna to go to someone and say, okay, great. You've admitted you're powerless over food. You've admitted your life is unmanageable. Now stick to a food plan. We can't, right? A first step alone doesn't do it. All a first step does is hopefully make someone willing to do the work so that he or she can get a relationship with God. So Bill says, fear sobered me for a bit. But of course it was only a bit, right? Who among us ever got abstinent because someone said, oh, you're gaining weight. If you don't stop, you're gonna weigh X number of pounds. You're gonna have heart problems. You're not gonna be able to walk. You're not gonna see your kids grow up. And then we sat back and said, oh, thank you for scaring me. I think I'll be able to put the food down now. Doesn't work. It works for normal people. My husband is a normal people. Um, about, I don't know, 15 or so years ago, he went to the doctor. The doctor says, you have high blood pressure. You need to lose some weight. And he said, okay. And he came home and he lost the weight. And 15 years later, the weight is still off. But it doesn't work for people like us. I met someone and she said, um, she was diabetic and her doctor said, if you don't do something, it will affect your eyes. It will affect your kidneys. When I talked to her, she had a seeing eye dog because she was blind and she was waiting for a kidney transplant. She was on dialysis. Fear doesn't do it. So here he is and it's, you know, he's just said, everyone became resigned to the certainty. I would have to be shut up somewhere or would stumble along to a miserable end. But then this, how dark it is before the dawn. I was soon to be catapulted. He didn't catapult himself. He was catapulted into what I like to call the fourth dimension of existence. I was to know happiness, peace, and usefulness in a way of life that is incredibly more wonderful as time passes. So he goes from top of the page, loneliness, despair, and self-pity to happiness, peace, and usefulness. And just like we know this illness is progressive, recovery is progressive. We should always be growing in happiness, in peace, which is a serenity in spite of circumstances and in usefulness. That's a way how we can tell if we're growing in recovery? Are we growing in those three things? So here's Bill, you know, just sitting in a bleak November, drinking in his kitchen. 
So he's actually drinking. And what happens? God looks down, takes a break from whatever series he's watching and says, see my friend Bill there? It's time. We're going to launch a search and rescue mission for my friend Bill today. So he arranges things so that Ebby, who used to be Bill's drinking buddy, but doesn't live in New York anymore, has a business trip and has to go to New York. And so Ebby calls Bill and says, I'm coming to New York and I'm sober. And Bill's like, yeah, okay. This guy had been committed for alcoholic insanity. Okay, he'll come over for dinner and then we'll drink. Bill didn't care and, you know, and because that's how we are in the illness, right? He didn't think, oh, my friend finally got sober. Good for him. Okay, I'll just try and make it through the night without drinking. He didn't care. He just said his coming was an oasis in my dreary desert. And then Ebby shows up. Now, remember, Bill was drinking. And Ebby didn't say, Bill, go get sober for 48 hours and then I'll come back. Ebby talked to him and he said, Bill said there was something different about his eyes. He was inexplicably different. Of course, he'd been transformed. I mean, Bill says he wasn't himself. He didn't look like himself. He wasn't a mess. But guys, butterflies don't look like caterpillars, right? This program isn't about getting a little better. This program is about transformation. And Ebby was a butterfly standing at Bill's door. And Bill says, okay, what's all this about? And Ebby just says, I've got religion, no sugarcoating God. So I looked up the word religion because, you know, he didn't say I've become a Christian, a Jew, a Muslim. What does the word religion mean? The belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So true religion is the belief in and worship of a superhuman controlling power, especially a personal God. So he says, I've got religion. And Bill's like thinking, okay, yeah, whatever. My gin's gonna last longer than his ranting and raving. But to his surprise, Ebby didn't rant and rave. He was very matter of fact. So again, when we're trying to help someone, we don't rant, matter of fact. And he said, yeah, I was about to be committed, but two guys came in and persuaded the judge to suspend my commitment um, so they could do this, try out this program on me. It's a simple religious idea, belief in and worship of a superhuman power a, a personal God and a submission of our life, right? I could believe in God and have it be totally irrelevant to my life. And a practical program of action, cleaning up our past, living an honest way of life and helping others. And he said, so the judge said, okay, let's give it a try. That was two months ago. So in two months, he went from being an alcoholic who was about to be locked up to someone who God used on a search and rescue mission. And he says the result was self-evident. It worked. Bottom of page nine, he had come to pass his experience along to me if I cared to have it. And Bill said, I was shocked, but interested. Certainly I was interested. 
I had to be for I was hopeless. We get interested when we're hopeless. So if someone doesn't feel hopeless, you know, we can spend a little time trying to show them the hopelessness. But if someone really says, yeah, I don't believe I'm hopeless, they're probably not going to be willing to do all the hard work that this program requires. So he says, Ebby talked for hours. So again, a 12-step call, it's not a 10-minute job. We put in the time. And Bill said, okay, he's going through his thinking process. I had always believed in a power greater than myself. I was not an atheist. Few people really are. So he wasn't an atheist per se, but he was a practical atheist, meaning it meant no difference in his life, whether or not there was God. He didn't make any decisions in his life based on thinking, will God approve of this or not? Was God was irrelevant to him. But he says, few people really are atheists. And this book backs that up on page 55. It says that deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. So that means when God created us, right? Two lungs, one heart, two kidneys, the fundamental idea of himself, it's there. Few people are really atheists, he's saying. Um, so he's saying, okay, he listened. Um, he believed in a God, but not in a personal God. And so he said, with ministers and the world's religions, I parted right there. When they talked of a God personal to me, who was love, superhuman strength and direction, I became irritated and my mind snapped shut. So now we're on the top of page 11. And you think about it, like if someone told him and he that there was this supernatural God that, who wasn't impersonal, wasn't sitting back and watching Netflix, but was love, superhuman strength and direction, why wouldn't a person want to believe in that kind of God? And he gives the answer, top of page 11 says about religion, I adopted those parts which seemed convenient and not too difficult, the rest I disregarded. So I think sometimes we have to ask ourselves, are we not believing in God? Because we know that if there was a God, he wouldn't approve of certain things we were doing. So it's easier to just say, there is no God than to say, there is a God and I'm not in alignment with his will for me. So Bill in hindsight, in hindsight says, yeah, it was too difficult. And he had some other things that bothered him. He, he'd been to war. So he's like the war, the burnings, you know, all these things. And he says, judging from what I had seen in Europe, the power of God in human affairs was negligible. If there was a devil, he seemed the boss. Those are pretty strong words. Um, he'd seen a lot of suffering. And that's something that can be a block to us too, right? If there was a God, how could he allow war, poverty, you know, my mother to have Alzheimer's, my dad to die of Parkinson's, human trafficking, cancer, um, whatever it is, like we say, how could a good God allow this? And Ebby didn't debate him. He just said, basically, Bill, I don't know. All I know is that when I surrendered my life to God, God did for me 
what I couldn't do for myself. Um, he didn't debate. You know, it's like I was blind and now I see. He just said, this is what happened. I can't answer all those other questions, but this is what happened to me. He said his human will had failed. He was incurable. He had admitted defeat. Then, after admitting defeat, this is Ebby, he had in effect been raised from the dead, suddenly taken from the scrap heap to a level of life better than the best he had ever known. So again, this isn't about getting a little better or losing 10 pounds so we look good for a high school reunion and make that boy who rejected us, you know, feel bad. It's not about that. It's about transformation, caterpillar to butterfly transformation. And then he's saying, well, has this power originated in Ebby? And Bill saying, well, obviously it hadn't. There had been no more power in him than there was in me at that minute. And that was none at all. And Bill's open-minded. So again, he was hopeless. He hears a message that makes sense. That was, you know, Ebby had the two things we say are important when we carry the message, love and correct information. And so Bill says, hmm, maybe these religious people are right after all. And he says, I love this line. My ideas about miracles were drastically revised right then. Never mind the musty past. So I guess he's thinking like, yeah, Moses waving his hand and parting the Red Sea. Okay, that's really cool. But how is that going to help me stop drinking? But he looks at Ebby and he says, here sat a miracle directly across the kitchen table. That's what helps, right? Not Moses, you know, waving his staff or things like that, but Ebby sitting across from him at the kitchen table, not drinking. That was more impressive to him. And he said, Ebby was much more than inwardly reorganized, top of page 12. He was on a different footing. His roots grasped a new soil. Chapter five tells us that the roots of this illness our selfishness and self-centeredness. So basically, Ebby got a root transplant from the garden of self into the garden of God, where he was thinking of what's God's will for me and how could I be of use to others? And so Bill's saying, okay, there's still some prejudice in me, right? We, we all have prejudices from the way we've been brought up, the things we've learned, um, but so he's trying to work his way through it. And his friend says, why don't you choose your own conception of God? And Ebby had been in the Oxford groups, which was a, a Christian group, but it seems as if God just gave him an inspiration, an intuitive thought at that moment, so that this program could be open to everyone. And so Bill said, okay, it was only a matter of being willing to believe in a power greater than myself. Nothing more was required of me to make my beginning. See, step one isn't really a beginning. We begin getting an infusion of power, the ability to resist temptation at step two, when we're willing to believe. And what does he say? Thus was I convinced God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. So if I'm saying, well, 
God isn't concerned about me. God doesn't love me. God doesn't care about me. God's forsaken me. And then they really give me the formula. How badly do I want God? Do I want God badly enough to, let's say, put aside 30 minutes to hang out with him and spend time with him every morning? Do I want God badly enough to not do things that I know would displease him? Before I got in this program, I didn't want God badly enough. And when I got in this program, it wasn't that I so much wanted God. I wanted to stop binging. And that was, that was the only way that was offered. But it changes. We get to the point where we actually want God. So here's Bill. He says, um, at long last, I saw, I felt, I believe. Scales of pride and prejudice fell from my eyes. The willingness made the pride and the prejudice go away. Willing to find God, to believe that God existed, that God cared about him, and willing to conform his life so that he could be the kind of person God could be happy with. And he said, um, long ago, he'd had a sense of God's presence, but it was blotted out by worldly clamors. So here's how to block God if we want to block God. Be too concerned with worldly clamors, with my status, with the clothes in my closet, with my job. Um, and even if we want to go deeper with, um, with anything really having to do with that we could call a worldly clamor, anything that takes too much attention, good things can become worldly clamors. If I'm too focused on how my children are doing, that's now a worldly clamor. And he says, how blind I have been. Um, so he went to the hospital and here's why. It says treatment seemed wise for I showed signs of delirium tremens. That's why he went to the hospital because it would be physically dangerous for him not to go. And then what happened there? It says, I humbly offered myself to God as I then understood him, as I then understood him, because our concept of God grows and changes as we go through this work. And he said, to do with me as he would. So here's Bill, like a day sober, God, take me and do with me whatever you want. He said he placed himself 100% under God's care and direction. Um, I don't think we can expect God's care if we're not willing to follow God's directions. And he said, I ruthlessly faced my sins, you know, back then, you know, sins, now we call them character defects, ruthlessly. We are hard on ourselves, but considerate of others. So a lot of us say, oh, you know, I'm always too hard on myself. I'm always too hard on myself. This is where we're supposed to be hard on ourselves, not a vague, I'm no good, but I did this wrong, I did that wrong, I did the other wrong, so that we can ask God's forgiveness for him to remove these defects so we can make our amends and start living the opposite way. And he says, he went to that hospital and he hasn't had a drink since. So Ebby visited him. He basically did his fifth step with him where he went over his past, he made his amends. And then he says, I was to test my thinking by the new God consciousness within, page 13. So his consciousness changes 
common sense would become uncommon sense. That's a result of surrendering to God. And then it tells us how to handle doubt, a perfect formula. I was to sit quietly when in doubt, asking, whenever the book says asking in reference to God, it means praying, asking only for direction and strength to meet my problems as he would have me. And then it tells us how to pray, basically not for ourselves, unless it would make us useful to others. And then Ebby says, if you do these things, Bill, you will have a new relationship with your creator, plus the elements of a way of living, which answers all your problems. That is the goal of this book, to help us get a new relationship with God and a way of living that answers all our problems. And it says, what do we need to get started? Bottom of 13 still, belief in the power of God plus willingness, honesty, and humility to establish and maintain the new order of things. These are essential, right? So it's, what do we need? Belief in the power of God, willingness, honesty, and humility. I mean, if we don't have honesty, we may as well take a big black Sharpie and write the words, go away, God, across our hearts, because God absolutely will not coexist with dishonesty. So top of 14, Bill says, simple, right? Just four things I have to do, but not easy. It means destruction of self-centeredness. If the roots of this illness are selfishness and self-centeredness, the roots of recovery have to be humility, other-centeredness, reliance on God. And he says the moment he accepted these proposals, the effect was electric and there was a sense of victory. Most of us don't get that feeling like oh, a clean wind has you know, just gone through me and reorganized my soul. Sometimes we do, but usually not. Um, but what does happen is, as um, Herb K says, I love to plagiarize this line, willingness allows grace to enter. Willingness allows grace to enter. When we're willing, it's like God can say, okay, now I can go to work and do a renovation job on that person's soul. Now, Bill's still in the hospital going through all this. And he says, while I lay in the hospital, the thought came. How'd that thought get there? The thought came that there were thousands of hopeless alcoholics who might be glad to have what had been so freely given me. I could help them and they could help others. And I think that's what happens sometimes when um, we work these steps and we're really willing to do God's will and we pray and we get quiet and we ask. The best way I could describe it, it's like someone takes an index card of information and just slips it in my brain. Like a thought is there that wasn't there before. Now, of course, we can't assume that any random thought is from God or we're going to do all sorts of like weird things. But Bill thinking, huh, Ebby came and helped me for free. Maybe I should go and help other alcoholics for free. That was reasonable to assume that that was from God. And thank God, right? Because otherwise... None of us would be here. Bottom of 14, um, something that I have two stars by, says, fate that Ebby said to him, 
Okay, you have to demonstrate these principles in all your affairs. And particularly, is it imperative to work with others? So we have to always practice honesty, helpfulness, but it is imperative to work with others once we're through the steps, once we've done the work ourselves. Then it says, faith without works is dead. And how appallingly true for the alcoholic and the compulsive eater. For if an alcoholic or compulsive eater fails to perfect and enlarge her spiritual life through, and I would say the next line would be prayer and meditation, but it doesn't say that. It says the way we perfect and enlarge our spiritual lives is through work and self-sacrifice for others. Sometimes I'll say to someone, what'd you do today to you know, help someone else? And it's like, well, I sat on my comfortable couch in my comfortable air conditioned house and I made a call for two minutes. I mean, obviously they don't say it like that, but that's what happens. They use the word self-sacrifice. So by definition, a self-sacrifice means there's something I want to do, but I'm giving it up in order to help someone else. Um, for me, that's usually time, giving up blocks of time. Um, that's the work we do. And it says, if we don't do it, we won't be able to survive the certain trials and low spots ahead. So working this program doesn't mean there aren't going to be trials, there aren't going to be low spots. In fact, it's guaranteed we're going to have trials and low spots. But if we do this work, we don't have to pick up and they guarantee us if we don't do this work, we will surely drink again. So the people who say, um, yeah, I'm through the steps, but I don't want to sponsor headed for trouble. According to this book, you know, that is our insurance policy against picking up. So it says, um, and if we, if he drank, he would surely die. I mean, this is how serious people took it. Not, um, well, if I pick up all, it's no big deal. It's like, no, if, I mean, I know if I eat outside my food plan willingly, I have no idea where I'm gonna end up. And there is no way with, by God's grace, with God's continued grace that I'm willing to risk that. So here he is on page 15, abandoning himself with enthusiasm to helping other alcoholics to a solution of their problems. Not just being kind, but offering a real solution. And that's what we have, a solution. And he says, but sometimes it was hard and he was plagued by waves of self-pity and resentment. But what did he do? He said, when all other measures failed, so we can assume he did a 10 step, he made any amends, but if he still had self-pity and resentment, he said, work with another alcoholic would save the day. It is a design for living that works in rough going. Now, some people, if they have resentment and self-pity, they may be able to, um, I don't know, go on a bike ride or have a scoop of ice cream if they're not a compulsive eater or talk to their friends about it. But the way God made us is the best antidote for our negative emotions is throwing ourselves into working with others, into helping other people. Um, and so Bill continues to say, 
the joy of living we really have, even under pressure and difficulty. Like we can be happy even when things are really hard. And he says, there is scarcely any form of trouble and misery which has not been overcome among us. So if we surrender to God's will, either the problem may go away and miraculously get resolved or we're able to rise above it. So, um, and he's, then he talks about the fellowship. We meet frequently so newcomers may find the fellowship they crave. So that's one reason it's important to just get involved, that there's like a hole in our heart. The major hole is for God, but we all do have a hole in our heart for human companionship, for people who think the way we do, who are wired the way that we're wired. And page 16, he just finishes off by saying, yeah, an alcoholic in his cups, meaning who's still drinking, is an, is an unlovely creature. But I think as people in recovery, our job is to love the unlovable. It's easy to love people who have everything together. Um, but for me, I know my growth, what I work on is, okay, help me to love the unlovable. Help me to love people who are difficult to love. And they say, there should be a vast amount of fun about it. I mean, recovery should be fun, but underneath there's always faith working in us 24 hours a day. You know, faith, we just turn, we turn things over to God. We take the action we think he would want us to, and we leave the results up to him. And he closes by saying, we don't have to look any further for utopia. I looked up utopia and it says an ideal place. We don't have to look for it. We don't have to say, oh, life sucks. But when I die and get to heaven, everything's going to be fine. No, we have heaven. We can have heaven brought down to earth and says utopia. We have it with us here and now. And then he gives a tribute to his friend. Each day, my friend's simple talk in our kitchen multiplies itself in a widening circle of peace on earth and goodwill to men. And aren't we the most blessed people to be able to be part of that circle? And with that, I will pass.